0: itunes presents meet the author some in the afterlife you relive all your experiences but this time with the events reshuffled into a new order. All the moments that share a quality are grouped together. You spend two months driving the street in front of your house, seven months having sex. You sleep for thirty years without opening your eyes. For five months straight, you flip through magazines while sitting on a toilet. You take all your pain at once, all twenty-seven intense hours of it. Bones break, cars crash, skin is cut, babies are born. Once you make it through, it's agony-free for the rest of your afterlife. But that doesn't mean it's always pleasant. You spend six days clipping your nails. Fifteen months looking for lost items. Eighteen months waiting in line. Two years of boredom, staring out a bus window, sitting in an airport terminal. One year reading books. Your eyes hurt and you itch because you can't take a shower until it's your time to take your marathon 200-day shower. Two weeks wondering what happens when you die. One minute realizing your body is falling. Seventy-seven hours of confusion. One hour realizing you've forgotten someone's name. Three weeks realizing you are wrong. Two days lying. Six weeks waiting for a green light. Seven hours vomiting. Fourteen minutes experiencing pure joy. Three months doing laundry. Fifteen hours writing your signature. Two days tying shoelaces. Sixty-seven days of heartbreak. Five weeks driving lost. Three days calculating restaurant tips. Fifty-one days deciding what to wear. Nine days pretending you know what is being talked about. Two weeks counting money. Eighteen days staring into the refrigerator. Thirty-four days longing. Six months watching commercials. Four weeks sitting in thought, wondering if there is something better you could be doing with your time. Three years swallowing food. Five days working buttons and zippers four minutes wondering what your life would be like if you reshuffled the order of events. In this part of the afterlife, you imagine something analogous to your earthly life, and the thought is blissful. A life where episodes are split into tiny, swallowable pieces, where moments do not endure, where one experiences the joy of jumping from one event to the next like a child, hopping from spot to spot on the burning sand.
1: Great. I really like the way you were able to read that without moving your lips, David. It was really, really impressive. Um, uh, so my, uh, thank you all for coming. It's great to be here at the at the Roundhouse, you know, site of all sorts of famous haf- happenings by Soft Machine and others. But uh, here we've got a really great happening tonight because we're gonna, I'm going to be speaking with uh, David Eagleman uh, and... Uh, I actually reviewed this book in the Observer and and said that it had the sort of unaccountable jaw-dropping quality of of pure genius. So uh, I, I'm a, I'm a great fan, and I actually think that wasn't hyperbole from me. That was uh, actually a really quite uh, um, a quite reasonable explanation of this book, the originality of which I think will have been uh, uh, suggested to you by that by that extract. Uh, and I figure since we've heard that piece, a way into talking about the book uh, uh, generally and, a, a way of, and as a way of talking to David more generally about what he's up to is to ask a couple of questions that I've always wanted to ask him about, about that. Um, the figures that you quote in it, you know, we spend this much time doing this and this much time doing that. I mean, were they, um, were they quite scrupulously calculated or plucked out, plucked out of air?
2: Well, I assumed an 80-year lifespan, and I did these all as back-of-the-envelope calculations. Of course, it's very different for everyone. And people have constantly come up to me afterwards and said, ah, oh, you forgot the number of hours you know, making PowerPoint presentations or so on, things that are involved in their life. But um, <clears throat> what's interesting is somebody pointed me to an article recently in a German newspaper, and the headline of the article was Seven Months Having Sex, and it said, uh, my day job is I'm a I'm a neuroscientist, and so the article in German said Dr. David Eagleman, a neuroscientist at Baylor College of Medicine, has spent his career figuring out how we spend our time, and it was all presented as though it were my real research, which it's not. It was made up.
1: And presumably there are certain sort of uh, national and cultural variations here. Maybe in sort of German terms, that the seven months was sort of below the national the the, the national <laughs> average. Um, was 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 some? I mean, some is the first piece in the book. Was it the first piece you wrote, I wonder?
2: It's not. Um, Yeah, I I worked on this book for many years, and there were lots of things that started off as seeds of stories. Um, Once I had sort of three or four seeds, I realized it was sort of blossoming, going somewhere. But once the whole thing was written, I I reshuffled everything very carefully, so there's a very particular order to it. Some was just a nice introduction, a nice way in. For those of you who haven't read the book, um, it's 40 short stories, and each story describes a different possible afterlife. And <clears throat> it's uh, you'll see after you hear a few of these stories, that actually has nothing to do with the, um, any sort of real pro- proclamation for an afterlife. Instead, it's literary fiction. They're made-up stories that shine light on... On who we are and the joys and complexities of being human, and what sorts of things matter to us, and I realized that the afterlife was this terrific playing field within which I could explore a lot of ideas. Um, but it, by the way, I wrote seventy-six stories originally, and I trimmed them. Yeah, I trimmed them down to the forty that I thought gave the best stretch in different mental dimensions. Because, um, <clears throat> as you know, having read the book. You read one story and that sort of puts you in a particular universe about what's going on and then you flip the page and you're into something completely different um so for example in 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 some stories there's a god, sometimes god's a female, one story is God is a married couple in in one story, we were created by a a species of dimwitted creatures um, that built us in order to answer the questions that they couldn't and in many other stories um things get very different. So one of the stories, God, for example, is is actually the size of a microbe. And he doesn't know that we exist because we're on the wrong spatial scale. Uh, and his congregants are actually the bacteria. Uh, and they're the only ones in, in the running for eternal reward or punishment. We're just the nutritional substrate. Um, and in many other stories, there's no God at all. It's very different Sort of thing, yeah. So, <clears throat> so the point was, I wanted the reader, you know, story after story to be stretched to a different part of the mental landscape that maybe he or she hadn't thought about before, and then um, so that's how I trimmed it down to the 40 that I thought gave the best axes for that.
1: Yeah, yeah. And so uh, the other 36 were they? Was that a was that a natural cutoff point in that? Were there forty? Were there forty that were a lot better than the other thirty-six? I mean, when when did you get to this idea of there being
2: forty as opposed to I don't know fifty or or whatever? Yeah, I know forty sounds kind of biblical, um, but it turned was out it's completely accidental. There was, oh. but once once I la- once I realized that was sort of the, the the threshold, they all had to be better quality than this. It just so happened that there were forty, and so that's where I left it. seemed yeah. like a pretty good number.
1: It's um and. When you, I mean, obviously this, this book has become a, a huge success and that seems incredibly unsurprising now. But I wonder, was there a time when you were, you know, you were offering this, shall we say, really quite unusual book? And, you know, from publisher, in publishing terms, there's something which is quite easily sellable. Let's say a three, three, four hundred page novel with characters, all this kind of stuff. This, in some weird way, is a sort of, uh, it's, it's its a sort of difficult sell in, in a way, isn't it?
2: Yeah, I have, uh, like most authors probably, I have a collection of rejection letters, which were very sweet, actually. They said, I mean, uh, one agent that I was trying to get said, I think this is a jewel of literary fiction, but I, I don't know how to sell a book like this. And so, um, yeah, so I got several rejections before I found an agent who said, you know, We'll, we'll test the waters. I'm not even taking you on officially, but we'll test the waters. We'll see what happens. And then she called back 36 hours later and said, wow, um, Pantheon just picked this up. Um, and once Pantheon in the United States picked it up, then it started going around. I was very lucky in the UK that Canongate picked this up. They've been terrific. Um, so, yeah, the quality that was scaring everyone about it was that it's not like other books. I mean, the, the biggest compliment I've received on it is that it's unique. Um, and that's something that I think spring-loaded it. Once, once it got through the gate, then it was ready to fly. But, boy, it was hard getting through that gate originally. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, of course, like
1: it, it's incredibly original. And it's one of the strange things about highly original books. It turns out there are precedents for this kind of originality. And, uh, I mean, I don't know. It's, uh, one, the, the names that come to mind are the obvious ones. There's, there are touches of Borges in some of the stories. But it seemed to me that it's the—I the, was going to say the overwhelming influence—but no, that's to exaggerate. There's a there's a lot of Calvino's invisible cities in here. I mean, he he's somebody. It seems to me that you 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 really deeply absorbed. Uh, and uh, yeah, I just wondered if, if if that's if that's right.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, yeah, Calvino and Borges and Gabriel Garcia Marquez. These are real heroes of mine. And, uh, you know, sort of my literary favorites. Um, one, so the, the structure that Calvino used in Invisible Cities, where it was several short stories like this, I just loved it. I thought that was a perfect way to, to spell out my ideas also. Um, one thing that I feel very lucky about is, the book is, it's literary fiction, but when you read it, if you didn't know anything about me, you might guess that my background is as a scientist. Do you think you would have guessed that? or Somehow that I'm in that world? Um, either that or just some sort of crazy acid head living in a kind of
1: uh, in a, in a trailer park
2: somewhere. For, well, <laughs> those aren't mutually exclusive, I suppose. But um, yeah, so I was able to, you know, I spend all day in, in the laboratory trying to figure out how the brain works. And the way that science actually proceeds is nothing like the textbooks suggest, where it always suggests some sort of linear process. This is discovered, then that. Science never goes like that. It's always about the creative leap. It's always about thinking about what we know and then making the wackiest story that you can possibly think of that everyone says is nuts and then. You So, you, you keep leaping onto these islands and you look back to see if you can build a bridge to what we know, and if you can, then that's progress, but most of the time you can't. You end up on some wacky island and you explore it for a while, and then and then that's it. Um, but it's really nice to be able to, to use literature as a vehicle for further exploration of those places and sort of to roll out those ideas without any rules now. Um, so that's allowed me to, I think, take a structure that was explored by Calvino and Borges and so on, and then explore the ideas that I really find completely interesting.
1: But um, one thing you didn't do, I mean, in, Invisible Cities, has, as you all know, has this very rigorous mathematical structure, doesn't it? Uh, Divide it up into whatever it is, thin cities, uh, whatever, I can't remember yeah, the fat other Fat cities. And it, and it all sort of, ma- there's sort of six of each, six Six of each, or something yeah, like that's that. Right. He goes through all the different permutations. You didn't go that far, no. But, I, right, but I mean, there is a. It seems to me there's a a Calvino-esque thing within the stories. So if you think of something like the story about Octavia, the spiderweb city, this is one of the, these crazy Calvino cities where um, it's cons- it's it's a city. Um, it's built of ropes. It's like a big net hanging over a over, hanging over a valley, an abyss. So it's it's incredibly tenuous really then right at the end he says everybody in Octavia is incredibly relaxed they're not uptight and worried about the future the way that people are in normal cities do you think oh my god why is that he says because they know that the ropes can only last so long and that's a that's a kind of turnaround Mm. that we very often get in your in your uh, Mm. in your pieces isn't it
2: interesting yeah
1: Um, in in that the obvious conclusion we would draw from the initial premise Uh. turns out to be exactly the opposite of what the reality of this thing is maybe, maybe you could read one of, one of those ones with the beautiful
2: switch. Um, sure. How about? Well, maybe I'll just uh, maybe I'll just read the second story, the one right after them. Uh, this one's called Egalitaire. Um, <clears throat> In the afterlife, you discover that God understands the complexities of life. She had originally submitted to peer pressure when she structured her universe, like all the other gods had with a binary categorization of people into good and evil. But it didn't take long for her to realize that humans could be good in many ways and simultaneously corrupt and mean-spirited in other ways. How was she to arbitrate who goes to heaven and who to hell? Might not it be possible, she considered, that a man could be an embezzler and still give to charitable causes? Might not a woman be an adulteress, but bring pleasure and security to two men's lives? Might not a child unwittingly divulge secrets that splinter a family? Dividing the population into two categories, good and bad, seemed like a more reasonable task when she was younger. But with experience, these decisions became more difficult. She composed complex formulas to weigh hundreds of factors and ran computer programs that rolled out long strips of paper with eternal decisions. But her sensitivities revolted at this automation and when the computer generated a decision she disagreed with, she took the opportunity to kick out the plug in rage. That afternoon, she listened to the grievances of the dead from two warring nations. Both sides had suffered. Both sides had legitimate grievances. Both pled their cases earnestly. She covered her ears and moaned in misery. She knew her humans were multidimensional, and she could no longer live under the rigid architecture of her youthful choices. For months, she moped around her living room in heaven, head drooped like a bulrush while the lines piled up. In a moment of desperation, the thought crossed her mind to let everyone wait online indefinitely, letting them work it out on their own. But then a better idea struck her generous spirit. She could afford it. She would grant everyone, every last human, a place in heaven. After all, everyone had something good inside. Her new plan brought back the bounce to her gate, returned the color to her cheeks. She shut down the operations in hell, fired the devil, and brought every last human to be by her side in heaven. Newcomers or old-timers, nefarious or righteous, under the new system, everyone gets equal time to speak with her. Most people find her a little garrulous and over-solicitous, but she cannot be accused of not caring. The most important aspect of her new system is that everyone is treated equally. There is no longer fire for some and harp music for others. The afterlife is no longer defined by cots versus waterbeds, raw potatoes versus sushi, hot water versus champagne. Everyone is a brother to all, and for the first time, an idea has been realized that never came to fruition on earth true equality. The communists are baffled and irritated because they have finally achieved their perfect society but only by the help of a god in whom they don't want to believe. The meritocrats are abashed that they're stuck for eternity in an incentiveless system with a bunch of pinkos. The conservatives have no penniless to disparage. The liberals have no downtrodden to promote. So God sits on the edge of her bed and weeps at night, because the only thing everyone can agree upon is that they're all in hell. <laughs>
1: that is great Um, it's uh, you were mentioning how you you um, spent a you invested a good deal of energy in the sequencing of 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 the book yeah so you you um, I mean how do you feel do you want it to be read as a book from beginning to end one after the other because although I'm slightly losing track of uh, of what's happening it's now available in all sorts of different technological forms which in a way facilitate um, a kind of non-sequential uh,
2: reading of it. Maybe
1: you could sort of answer that question and say something about these many different forms that it's currently in.
2: Yeah, um, well what's terrific is, um, right, so Gate has produced an audio version of the book and the 40 stories are read by all sorts of people with very wonderful voices. So you heard Stephen Fry and there's Jarvis Cocker and Gillian Anderson and Nick Cave and lots and lots of others, actors and musicians and so on, and each one of them are reading a different story. So it's really terrific, and it's a terrific experience for me to hear it. I think you can take the book in a random-access manner, um, and it's quite possible that there are many sequences that are superior to the one that I thought of doing anyway. So I quite quite like that idea. Um, It's also available now as an iPad app, which is... um, it, it's not sort of the, the iPad apps for books that other people have produced where you're just sort of flipping through it. Instead, you have the, the visual text, and then you have these uh, different readers. You can hear the audio part, and it's synchronized with the text. So as you're hearing Stephen Fry read it, let's say the text moves along with his voice, and then you can, you can switch back and forth however you want to read it. And then there are also embedded videos uh, for example, from the author. So you can hear me talking about the background material and the ideas behind the story and so on. So it's a pretty cool app. And, um, and I think that the individual stories are available on iTunes. You buy a couple stories for 99 pence. And that's a pretty cool idea. What we're really working on, um, and uh, my British publishers, Canigate are real leaders in this, is just trying to see how you can take material and, and do very different things with it. And you may know um, last year, oh, this was essentially a year ago, just over a year ago, um, Brian Eno, the British musician, contacted me and said that he read the book and that it resonated with him so much that he wanted to write 12 new pieces of music for the book. And would I like to perform this with him at the Sydney Opera House? So I said yes. And we went out to Sydney. And, uh, and we had a terrific time out there. And um, the way that went is Brian would make these sort of, you know, electronic soundscapes that were very haunting and beautiful. And then I and some other readers on stage, we were all sitting in darkness, but a spotlight would come up on us and we'd read the story very slowly over that soundscape. And then we were finished with the story. The lights would go out. And so it sort of provided a very intense uh, experience, which I think really was, was very meaningful to people. And we, we actually just did a reprise of that in Brighton last, uh, last month. Um, and, and, and we might take the show to different places, Japan and the States. It's a really neat show. And it's, you know, it's a writer's dream come true to sort of throw an idea bomb out there and it, it blossoms into other things. And now it's getting turned into a, a full-fledged, Opera at the Royal Opera House for 2012 with a, a guy named Max Richter, who's a, a German composer. He's going to write the music for it, and um, yeah, it's you know, it's just it's terrific for me to see it have this uh, these multiple afterlives of its own.
1: And um, in a way, though, I think you are being um, you are being maybe over modest about maybe that wasn't the best uh, you know yours wasn't the best sequence because I think there's a real sense of it becoming steadily more profound and engaging with uh progressively bigger issues i mean it's it becomes a more it, it seems to deal more obviously with religion as the as as the book goes on and there's that lovely section it's really quite near the end sort of it's where the gods are all hanging out in this kind of parking lot and drinking wine yeah it's quite you know that it, seems, it really does seem to be you know to be uh it's yeah it seems to be uh its meaning seems to deepen with with your sequence
2: oh yeah, you know, I think that's true a little bit the The story I just read, egalitaire uh, right I, I feel like that's a very basic one that's just warming people up to the ideas I would say I would say ninety percent of this book doesn't deal with religion at least not in any head on manner um, almost entirely it's about us and the and religion happens to be part of the issues that confront us. The only sense in which it, you know, maybe touches directly on religion is that all 40 stories are mutually exclusive. And they all take place in different possible afterlives. And so the meta message that one gets from the book is, is about the vastness of our ignorance. And the, the message that I've um, been able to sort of introduce with this book is this idea of shining a flashlight around the possibility space. Nobody knows if there's an afterlife, or if so, what the heck it would look like. So what I'm doing is just saying, hey, I'm going to shine a light on this point, we'll talk about it. Okay, now we're over here, now we're over here. And, and there's something about opening it up to that part of the discussion that I find very liberating, because I think this first decade of the 21st century will be remembered as this, polarized, this time of polarized debates between this, the, the, the strict atheists and the religiously, you know, the religious fundamentalists, and, and both, you know, there's smart people on both sides of this issue, but they spend all their energies arguing against each other. And I think for a modern discussion, this issue of there's no God, there is a God, it's so limited. There's so, what we already know in science tells us that there's so many more possibilities about what the heck we're doing here, that the issue about the old man with the beard on the cloud or a total absence of everything but the cold physical laws of the cosmos, that's really limited. Um... So, I was, uh, about 18 months ago now, I was on National Public Radio in the States, and I was talking about this, and I said, my pos- the interviewer was asking if I was religious or not, I said my position was that I think we don't know enough to commit to strict atheism. We know way too much to commit to any particular religious position, and to my mind, agnosticism is a little bit weak because it usually means... I'm not sure if the guy with the beard on the cloud exists or doesn't exist. That's what people often be mad. So I said, I'm more interested in an active exploration of new possibilities. So I call myself a Possibilian. And what happened was um, I left, so that was a live national broadcast. So I left the studio and I drove back to my lab. And I settled in uh, to get a day's work done at the lab. And I opened my email, and my email box was full of like over a hundred emails from strangers who had listened to the live broadcast. And they said, hey, I think I'm a possibilian also. And um, so I Googled the term, and, it, and the term didn't exist. So I bought and I and I <laughs> set it up, and I tried to figure out what I was going to do with this, but mostly what I did is I just went around talking about essentially, from a scientist's point of view, the vastness of our ignorance and all the stuff that we know we don't know. And then, of course, there's the bigger stuff, of well, stuff we don't even know we don't know. But the, but the point is that if you're going to have any sort of spirituality or you know, interest in what the possibilities are, you might as well predicate it on the bedrock of what we already know from science, like the vastness of the cosmos and quantum mechanics and all the weirdness of you know consciousness and all these great things that we can talk about. And all of that is missing from traditional religious stories because those were written a long time ago by people who didn't have any of the knowledge that we have. They didn't even know much about neighboring cultures and landscapes. So um, so I just think there's so much to talk about and explore, and some ended up in a, you know, in a funny, light-hearted way, it ended up being sort of the manifesto of the Possibilian movement in the sense of saying, look, there's, just, there's a lot to talk about, and, and maybe we shouldn't limit ourselves to this dichotomy, maybe this false dichotomy.
1: You know, it's funny that I was gonna, you've just used that word manifesto, and I think one of the most uh, original books to have been published this year Uh, It's it's this book called Reality Hunger by David Shields. It's highly original and Mm -hmm. it's made up overwhelmingly of bits that he's grabbed from other people. Uh, And to some, I mean, I sort of jokingly called him the kind of anti-novel jihadist. And um, one of the things that he and I share is this kind of what, he's much more vehement about it than I am, this kind of impatience, if you like, with, uh, with the old Old style, kind of 400-page narrative with 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 characters and all that all that story kind of stuff. When, as he says, you know, I'm re- I really want to get to the you know the deep plumbing of consciousness or all, all this kind of stuff. And it seems to me that it's actually I haven't talked to him about about your book, but uh, certainly for me as a reader, I've just felt so um, so grateful to you because my impatience, my my hunger and my impatience were satisfied in that I felt, my God, in this book I'm getting. The, uh, every every paragraph, every page, I'm getting this incredible illumination without any of the the, the sort of narrative dressing up, the fancy dress, which I, I kind of don't need. I wonder what if uh, I wonder in terms of reading though, if you have rather more patience for the kind of um, uh, the David Copperfield style of uh, of book. I
2: have I have no patience for the very florid language because I mean the, the great part about writing in the first place, which is so wild, is that. All we have to do is provide the bare minimum, and the reader brings all the rest to the table, right? So there's sort of no point in saying the curtains were blue and billowing. Like, all that, that doesn't matter. What you want to tell the readers, what's going on in the room? What are the things that matter? Um, <clears throat> so I um, am very interested in restructuring the novel. Um, by the way, when I first handed this to my agent, I actually it got accepted, I said, okay, well, let's call it some, a novel, and she said, oh, you can't call it a novel. And I said, well, why not? And she said, well, a novel has to have a character in it. And I said, there is a character, you, that's it's written in second person, singular. And she said, that doesn't count. I don't know why she thought that. And uh, anyway, she said, unless it has a character, and, a, and she suggested I write sort of a wrapping arch around it, and I refused to do that. So she wouldn't let me call it a novel, which I think is very uh, limited. And I have a new novel, uh, a new um, agent now. Um, (laughs) Uh but, but I am very interested in redefining it. I, you know, uh, when I, uh, years ago, I had a girlfriend who, who said to me, she was a a scientist, not a writer. And she said, David, because you love Shakespeare so much, why don't you, why don't you write like Shakespeare? And I said, oh, well, I do love Shakespeare, but that was done. I'm, I'm only yeah. Um, I'm only interested in writing something new. So yeah, what I'm doing right now, my next project actually is I'm writing an iPad only book. That won't ever exist as a physical copy, and what I've spent several months doing now is developing um, new ways, design specs for how you could read a book and get a get an argument, a nonfiction argument, in a very nonlinear way, which includes random access to different parts of the argument, and you can zoom in on parts of the argument that you find interesting, and you get more detail on that, and you can zoom out from the text and see the structure of the argument. Oh, I see, the author is giving this piece, which leads to this, and then here's the linker to that. So you can zoom in and out on the argument at different places, and then, of course, do all the cool stuff you can do with an iPad, like sweep the text aside and examine the figures more closely and stuff like that. But but what I really like about this idea is I'm putting the same amount of effort in that you would do to write a book, but it'll never exist like this. Yeah, Yeah. I think, I think the world's open for a lot of new ideas.
1: Um, I was just looking in my bag because um, I meant to bring, um, I was quite keen to sort of mention to you some sort of earlier examples of stuff similar to, to what you've done that, I, that I'd, I'd liked. Uh, there's this fantastic poem by, um, by Mark Doty in his collection called My Alexandria. And he talks about this, uh, there's a, a Zen master who for many years has practiced the art of renunciation and he's very near to dying. Just about to die, this Zen master, and just at the moment of his, just as he's about to die, he remembers there's a there's a there's a deer in the lo- in the park, and he thinks, oh God, who's going to feed him when I'm gone? And he says, and at that instant, he was reborn in the stunned flesh of a fawn. Oh, very nice. And in terms of brevity, I mean, it's even it's even briefer than the bits in in some. And it struck me actually that. Although, I mean, there's, there, are, there are lots of precedents for this kind of thing, in, often in just little tiny sort of off-the-cuff insights that, that people have, or in poems, you know. Uh, there's a great bit in John Cheever's journals, I mean, I think this is the most devastating version of the afterlife that I've come across when he's, he's in one of his deep alcoholic kind of states doing the, doing the washing up, and he thinks of his mum, who's dead, he wonders if, if the soul, instead of leaving the body when the body dies, actually just stays in the body and rots alongside it. Mm. And I just, it's, just, uh, it's funny, and it's one of these things that any high, highly original book, to replay the old T.S. Eliot idea, um, it, it actually reconfigures your relationship to the writing of the past. So it's funny. I mean, you've really you, you've I mean, as a result of coming up with this incredibly original thing. There's all sorts of stuff from the past which I feel has been kind of uh, reanimated, or which I've which I've seen in a in a different way.
2: Um, to that I just extent, didn't... it is
1: sort of. I, I see it as a kind of you know one can see it in a in a tradition of of uh, you know well in a in a literary tradition.
2: That's right. Well, uh, I just recently did a program with Will Self, who wrote How the Dead Live. And b- by way of introducing our conversation, he said, um, "You know, there are only two businesses for a writer: life or death, and so you, you choose one." And in 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 your book, um, you have a scene about uh, there's an afterlife uh, scene. There's
1: sort of it. We could we we're, so this is. Do, um, I'd love to hear that yeah. if you want to. Okay. This is this is obviously not entirely spontaneous. Is it? Uh, <laughs> but um, um, you know, so we're. We're in we're in dialogue here but I mean one of the things that I'm really sort of keen on is this idea that of course all writers are in uh, are in dialogue with each other even if they're not conscious of, you know even if they're not alive at the same time even if they're not conscious of, of each other's existence and uh, I thought it would be really nice actually if I if I read a it's a rather difficult reading in this purple light isn't it I mean Uh, if I read a bit from uh, my book, and then David would read uh, uh, a bit from from his. So uh, this is a book which is set half in Varanasi. And those of you who've been to uh, Varanasi will know that one of the peculiarities of the city is that on one half of the Ganges, it's incredibly uh, built up and populated. But the other bank, the far bank of the Ganges, which is only kind of 50 yards away, is totally deserted. And this is what I wrote about this. Uh, And then David will will read something not unrelated to it. Although I'd looked at it every day, I'd never crossed over to the other side of the Ganges. Then, one afternoon, I did. The boat nudged into the soft mud directly opposite Jane Gat, and I stepped out. It was deserted, but not completely deserted. A few other tourists had also made the trip and were strolling around. What had looked appealing from a distance turned out to be abysmal close up. There was nothing remotely holy about this place. For the most part, it was sandy and dry. In places, it was like a boggy moon with pools of brackish water, patches of moss and slime. By any normal standards, it was litter strewn. There were crushed packets of cigarettes, squelchy plastic bags, the old, the odd animal bone broken fragments of pottery, an old sandal, a couple of broken, muddy byrows. A dog came padding towards me, more hyena than dog. There was a strong sense of standing in the aftermath of something. But of what? The aftermath of a rubbish dump, a dump where the best bits had been cherry-picked, so that what remained was garbage, even by the low standards of rubbish stuff that, even according to the Indian habit of maximum utility, could not be recycled and reused. There was nothing to do here, no point in staying. I wished I hadn't come. It had been possible beforehand to believe that this other shore was the place where souls came to, re- came to rest. Excuse me. If this was the case, then eternity now seemed a polluted, defiled place. One would have been better off being reborn, having another punt on the roulette wheel of samsara and hoping for an incarnation upgrade next time around for nothing surely could have been worse than ending up here especially if you died here and as I I had been repeatedly told were reborn as a donkey. If that happened, would you know even if only for the split second in which the transmigration occurred that you had been you in a previous life. Would any of you survive in this new incarnation or would you just be a memoryless donkey? If the latter, then there was no need to worry about, about reincarnation. Lacking all consciousness of previous or future lives, you might as well never have been born before. If it had no idea of ever having been other than a donkey, then the donkey was oblivious to the fact that it was a donkey. So, through ignorance, the donkey had escaped from Samsara, though it probably didn't feel like it when it was dragging loads or being beaten with sticks and forced to do things against its will, when all it wanted to do was lie down in the soft mud, looking back towards Varanasi, thinking, now that rings a bell. And nice. you have got a, a sort of companion that, piece That's to right. That's... To, to go with this.
2: Yes. Um... Yeah, this one's called Descentive Species Yeah, it's funny we, uh, Well, I guess it's just part of the common consciousness Or as Jung would say The collective unconscious But um, yeah, there are these really neat ideas To explore there So this, this story explores that same idea This one's called Descentive Species In the afterlife You are treated to a generous opportunity You can choose whatever You would like to be in the next life Would you like to be a member of the opposite sex, born into royalty, a philosopher with bottomless profundity, a soldier facing triumphant battles? But perhaps you've just returned here from a hard life. Perhaps you were tortured by the enormity of the decisions and responsibilities that surrounded you, and now there's only one thing you yearn for, simplicity. That's permissible. So for the next round, you choose to be a horse. You covet the bliss of that simple life, afternoons of grazing in grassy fields, the handsome angles of your skeleton and the prominence of your muscles, the peace of the slow flicking tail or the steam rifling through your nostrils as you lope across snow-blanketed plains. So you announce your decision. Incantations are muttered, a wand is waved, and your body begins to metamorphose into a horse. Your muscles start to bulge. A a mat of strong hair erupts to cover you like a comfortable blanket in winter. The thickening and lengthening of your neck immediately feels normal as it comes about. Your carotid arteries grow in diameter. Your fingers blend hoofward. Your knees stiffen. Your hips strengthen and meanwhile as your skull lengthens into its new shape your brain races in its changes your cortex retreats as your cerebellum grows the homunculus melts man to horse neurons redirect synapses unplug and replug on their way to equestrian patterns and your dream of understanding what it is like to be a horse gallops towards you from the distance Your concern about human affairs begins to slip away. Your cynicism about human behavior melts. And even your human way of thinking begins to drift away from you. Suddenly, for just a moment, you are aware of the problem you overlooked. The more you become a horse, the more you forget the original wish. You forget what it was like to be a human, wondering what it was like, to be a horse this moment of lucidity does not last long but it serves as the punishment for your sins a Promethean entrails pecking moment crouching half horse half man with the knowledge that you cannot appreciate the destination without knowing the starting point you cannot revel in the simplicity unless you remember the alternatives and that's not the worst of your revelation You realize that the next time you return here with your thick horse brain, you won't have the capacity to ask to become a human again. You won't understand what a human is. Your choice to slide down the intelligence ladder is irreversible. And just before you lose your final human faculties, you painfully ponder what magnificent extraterrestrial creature enthralled with the idea of finding a simpler life, chose in the last round to become a human.
1: Ah, that is superb. Um, in a moment, uh, there'll be a chance for you to ask David questions. Uh, I'll just ask one more. Um, you mentioned about your <laughs> your day job, as it as it were. Um, it's often thought to be the kind of dream of the writer to be able to, you know, just write their do their own thing. Mm. 24/7, 365 days a year. I mean, what about you? What about you? Do you feel you would be? I mean, is your is your your day job absolutely? Do you think if you gave up your day job, you might find oh, actually, uh, uh, a major part of what's powering the writing is is being lost?
2: Oh, that's an interesting question. I don't know. I haven't thought that through because I'm not planning on giving up the day job. Only because. Um, um, you know, this is really the golden age of brain science, and I've worked very hard to get where I am in the field right now, and there's so much to discover, and we're really, you know, this is when we're standing on virgin snow every day, where no one's ever stood in the history of humankind, and so I'm I'm not, uh, ready to give that up. It does slow my writing pace a little bit, but I just stay up later than everyone else and keep, keep that going, so, um, yeah. And I, that's probably right that the ideas in science and, you know, and it's not just any science, it's not soil mechanics or something. It's it's the brain. It's about who we are. And so those ideas, I think, do find ways to provide some sort of background radiation for the for the literature that I write. So I hadn't even gone there about thinking if I were to get fired and had and to, you know, had to write full time without that, what that would be like. But yeah, I think I'm, I'm happy to have my day job.
1: And you've got, you, you're you contracted to write a whole bunch of, uh, well, more or less technical and freer books, aren't you?
2: Yeah, I have my next six books underway. They're all, one of them is 100% done. The rest are sort of 50, 60% done now. Um, it's, it's I, I tend to write in parallel. Actually, the poet, Walt Whitman did this also. He had a, a lazy Susan on his writing desk, and when he you know, sort of was running low on one thing, you'd spin it and find the next project near that. And I tend to do that. Uh, So this took me seven years to write. And it's interesting what you said before about, you know, the density of the information in here. Uh, Of course, it's, you would know as a writer, it's quite hard to achieve that. Each one of these stories I, you know, wrote and polished sort of 25, 30 times, really getting them crystalline, where there's not a wasted word in there. but it's funny because sometimes people look at this and say, well, geez, I can write that. But it took me seven years to do. It's really hard to write short, actually. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah. But anyway, I think, uh, I think I'm going to stick with the sort of seven-year schedule for writing books. But as long as I'm doing enough in parallel, that means one will come out every year on a steady <laughs> right. schedule. Okay. Yeah, Let's,
1: uh, that's, uh... Great. Okay. So um, I think we've got time left for some questions. And here's a hand going up right away and a microphone is coming your way, if you could, uh, if you could hang on. Thank you. Um, David, what has your day job taught you about how the
2: brain works, and how has that informed your writing? Good question. Um, So, uh, most of what we know about the brain is, you know, we're developing a really good understanding of the vastness of our ignorance. Um, There are, here's what we know for sure. We know that you, the conscious you, is entirely dependent on the integrity of this three-pound squishy wetware that's encased in the armor of the skull, and if you damage that stuff, that completely changes you. Uh, You know, people get strokes or traumatic brain injury or things that, you know, means maybe they can't see colors anymore or understand music or name fuzzy animals or they have a completely different risk aversion, they become gamblers, or their personality changes entirely or they can no longer speak language, things like this. Um, so, we know that when you damage that stuff, it changes you, and it's so fundamental, that issue, that in the end, we know that you are somehow a product of, you know, just this three-pound organ, which is so weird, but, but appears to be true. Um, now, where the really deep vastness uh, comes in is we don't have any idea how you can actually build something out of pieces and parts. I mean, it looks like the brain is just this vast, wet, mechanical network of pieces and parts interacting. Um, but is that all it takes? Does that mean the city of London might be conscious? Because, you know, there are handshakes and telephone signals and sewage lines and telephone li- I mean, maybe all that interaction of pieces and parts makes London conscious, but since it doesn't have ears and a mouth, we don't know how to talk to it. Something like that. Or is it very specific kinds of algorithms that need to be run? The the really deep question is, nobody knows what a theory of the brain is going to even look like, how you can take physical pieces and parts and have them interacting and then say, oh, that equals private subjective experience. Like the taste of feta cheese, I don't know what that's like for you. That's only inside your head. Um, That's what philosophers call a qualia or the redness of red to you might be very different in my head. Um, We don't know how to ever make physical pieces and parts equal that. So uh, I think the future is wide open uh, in that um, area. So everything I do in my laboratory falls under the umbrella of how brains construct reality. So I study, for example, time perception and something called synesthesia, which about 1% of the population has, where it's a mixture of the senses. You might hear music and it causes you to physically see colors. Um, And I also study... How the differences between brains matters at a societal level. So I uh, I direct the initiative on neuroscience and law, which is asking how modern neuroscience affects the way we think about criminal behavior and criminal punishment and new ideas for rehabilitation and and helping people out. So um, yeah, so that's essentially where things are in neuroscience right now and the questions that I'm looking at. Something you said just kind of surprised me that you said that you worked on these these little short things that are you know a couple pages long over and over and over and iterated on them but they seem like their own kind of each one seems like its own world and so you would i don't know i would naively think that you would develop one and then move on but it sounds like you kind of go and inhabit them over and over and over is that that just seems really surprising. Does it surprise you? Does it? Does it? Is it sort of confusing? Do you feel like you're jumping from one little world to the next all the time? The whole writing process seems surprising to me. Uh, that that's interesting. I mean, with each one, it's sort of like visiting a friend's house, and you've got this strange universe. And so I concentrate very much on one. But when I think I've sort of got it in place, or as much as I'm going to get it in place at that moment. I switch over to another one. But it's interesting. uh, I'm glad that that seemed surprising to you because this is what mathematicians do. They work tirelessly. They put so much effort into making mathematical proof look effortless, as though it just dropped out. And so that's, um, that's what we writers do too. It's the same idea where you want it to look like, oh, he just belched it out or something. But in fact, there's a lot of work to make it appear that way. But yeah, um, it is the case that each universe I step into, I have to do a lot of concentration on that. Um, What's really nice right now is there are about five different proposals on the table for making a film out of some. And um, there are two types of filmmakers who have approached approached me about this. Some are saying, look, we want to have different directors each make this five-minute thing, so it's a portmanteau of very different universes, just like this. And others are saying... We want to do it where it's a single protagonist who sort of walks through these different universes. The way Scrooge, what was that, a Christmas sto- Carol or something? Where Scrooge goes through these different uh, worlds, sort of. So the, uh, yes. So there are, different, there are different ways to step into this. It's these. up to you. Which one's it going to be? I, 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 the, the protagonist thing is somehow appealing to me. I hadn't, I, I hadn't thought of that way of doing it myself and so maybe it's just the surprisingness of that to me seems like, ooh, that's really neat. That would make that would shake it up for me and allow me to see it in a very new way. Is any of your projects that you're working on at the moment, or is it something that you would consider in the future, writing a traditional novel? Or would you stick to the current format of trying to do things differently? Thanks for that question. I think I'm only interested in doing things differently. Because the novel, there are so many thousands of beautiful novels out there. I don't know how I could do better there. So at least I want to strike out and hit new territory in the same way that I'm interested in with Possibilianism in exploring totally new ideas that haven't been talked about before. That's the same thing I'm trying to do. So even though my next six books are under contract, I'm secretly spending a little bit of my time working on my seventh one, which is my next fiction novel. And, um, you know, people have complimented some by calling it unique. Well, this next one's even uniqueer because <laughs> it's um, it takes place over 200 billion years um, there is a single narrator in it but it's just it's unlike anything that's ever been written in the fiction world as far as I know and so I'm really jazzed about that you know whether people are love it or hate it we'll just have to see but I think they'll at least appreciate uh, appreciate it and it gives it's written in the same sort of mischievous spirit as some and allows me to sort of have this very unusual way of getting right into to what matters. Um, at least if I've done my job right. It's, it's just it's a different angle. It's a different cut across the crystal that exposes different faces.
1: Hi there. Um, you seem to have the ability to convey very complex ideas in very succinct language, which isn't the traditional image of a scientist. Ah. Is that because we have a rather unfair and skewed vision of scientists, or do your fellow scientists look at you and think that you're, you're the screwball out there with the ability to convey these these complex ideas so well.
2: Mm. Uh, well, thank you for that compliment. I feel like in the life sciences, people tend to be pretty well-rounded and they can communicate pretty well. There are other fields. I spent one summer as a college student working at Los Alamos laboratories with a bunch of physicists, and it's slightly more <laughs> rare in that field. Life scientists tend to be people who are really interested in why we see the world the way we do and what, you know, what are the big questions and how can we get traction on our reality. Um, by looking under the hood at the machinery. And so, um, right, I think in that field in general, there's more of an effort and an ability to communicate. But that's very kind of you to say that. Um, As an undergraduate, I majored in British and American literature. So I've always had a love of language, and I've always had a dislike of jargon and things that confuse people. so, So hopefully with some combination of that, that's allowed me to try to express ideas in a way actually this is the mandate I give to all my students whenever they're telling me an idea or presenting something I say you've got to say it so that your grandmother would understand it and if your grandmother doesn't get it every word that you've said then you're doing it wrong and you've got to do it over so that's the mandate that I'm hoping to achieve with my next books the upcoming ones which are all about the brain
1: uh, we're going to close with David reading uh, one one final piece but I don't want anyone to feel that they've not had a chance for a question. I can't see everybody properly so do uh, sing out if you feel you've been overlooked. Here is a man who's been terribly overlooked over the years.
0: I just, one thing you didn't mention David with the, the collaboration with Brian Eno was the fact that there were photographs behind you on stage with the two faces slowly morphing into each other and then the, there were the many photos in the middle and I wondered how you felt that what that did as an experience to the—you kind of weren't there in the audience, so you never—I
2: saw the rehearsals, of you course. Saw the rehearsals,
0: but I, wondered, I thought it was mm-hmm. worth mentioning because it added another very interesting visual dimension to
2: that um, to some. That's right. So as I was reading the stories and Brian had his music, there were f- these big, giant faces projected on the back screen, and they were morphing. There were actually several different flavors of morphing going on. So. Um, they first started with very big blocks, giant pixels, and slowly the resolution increased until you could actually make out that it was a face until it came into high resolution and then the faces were changing one into the next, excuse me, but it was at a very slow time scale, so you had to, you had to really pay attention, sort of like watching the hour hand on a clock to see it moving. Um, I think it had a different effect for different people. Some people told me afterwards that it was distracting because with some, because it's written in a very crystalline form, you have to concentrate on the words. And some people thought, oh, the face is changing. And then they, then they missed something. So, um, but it was, it was super cool to try adding a very different uh, dimension to it. I think um, there's actually one more collaboration that's grown out of this, uh, which is a theater piece that I'm doing on this uh, back in Texas where I live. Uh, with um, a world class choreography company and a world class actor and a group of musicians. We're going to do a theater piece on this, which is um, in Houston's biggest theater, which is a very famous theater. It's going to be part of their season in two years, so it'll have 40 runs. It's, it's actually going to be quite wonderful. But for that, we're going to use visuals that are only abstract, you know, sort of very low spatial frequency abstract things that are more about the color and the feel of it rather than something where people might get distracted so we're just going to try out different things see how it rolls thanks for bringing that up
1: great so I think um David will now read uh one last piece and then if I understand what's happening I think then as you're leaving you'll also have the chance to hear Gillian Anderson reading the same piece so uh you, yeah. you know you can Get, you get two, but yeah, hey, that's
2: just the shuffling out music uh, for it. Um, and by the way, I should emphasize that I'm just going to sit right here. So if anyone has any other questions afterwards, just come up and chat. Okay. So here's um, here's a story called Reversal. It's the last story in the book. There is no afterlife, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean we don't get to live a second time. At some point, the expansion of the universe will slow down, stop. And begin to contract and at that moment the arrow of time will reverse everything that happened on the way out will happen again but backward in this way our life neither dies nor disintegrates but rewinds in this reverse life you are born of the ground at funeral ceremonies we dig you up from the earth and transport you grandly to the mortuary where the birth makeup is removed You are then taken to the hospital where, surrounded by doctors, you open your eyes for the first time. In your daily life, broken vases reassemble. Meltwater freezes into snowmen. Broken hearts find love. Rivers flow uphill. Marriages re-ride rocky roads and eventually end in erotic dating. The pleasures of a lifetime of intercourse are relived culminating in kisses instead of sleep. Bearded men become smooth-faced children who are sent to schools to gently strip away the original sins of knowledge. Reading, writing, and mathematics are expunged. After this diseducation, graduates shrink and crawl and lose their teeth, achieving the purity of the highest state of the infant. On their last day, howling because it is the end of their lives, Babies climb back into the wombs of their mothers, who eventually shrink and climb back into the wombs of their mothers, and so on, like concentric Russian dolls. In this reverse life, you have blissful expectations about what will come next as you experience your story backwards. At the moment of reversal, you are genuinely happy, for while life must be lived forward the first time, you suspect it will really be understood only upon replay. But you have a painful surprise in store. You discover that your memory has spent a lifetime manufacturing small myths to keep your life story consistent with who you thought you were. You have committed to a coherent narrative, misremembering little details and decisions and sequences of events. On the way back, the cloth of that storyline unravels. Reversing through the corridors of your life, you are battered and bruised in the collisions between reminiscence and reality. By the time you enter the womb again, you understand as little about yourself as you did your first time here.
0: Ah. this episode of meet the author was produced by itunes and the apple store on london's regent street to purchase the audiobook or listen
2: to more episodes in the series click the link below or search for meet the author in the itunes store